Readers Entertainment Radio presents Book Lights with your host, author Lisa Kessler. Book Lights, where we're shining a light on good books. Good morning, everyone. I hope your 2022 is off to a great start. I can't believe this is already our second show of 2022. What is time? Anyway, (laughs) I'm glad that you're here today. I have a really interesting author on with us today. If you haven't read her books yet, you're in for a treat. Her name is Shirley Reva Vernick, and I will read her bio here so you can get to know her. She's got some great books out there. Shirley Reva Vernick writes award-winning middle grade and YA fiction, including ALA Best Fiction Pick and Sydney Taylor Honor Book, The Blood Lie. Her essays have appeared in Salon, Cosmopolitan, Literary Journals, and City Newspapers. Shirley also helps run StoryBee.com, a storytelling web service that's used as a literacy tool on five continents. NASA even used it as a model for its Imagine Mars program, which combines storytelling and science for K-12 students. You can learn more about her on her website. I did put a link there. She's got lots of fabulous book trailers and information about her books there, and you can learn more. So I don't want to delay any longer. Are you there, Shirley? I am. Hi, Lisa. Hi. Thanks so much for being here today. You're up where it's very cold, right? Yes, I'm up in snowy, cold New England. We're having a real old-fashioned winter. (laughs) So you're all hunkered down, staying warm inside. Yes, that's right. Running to the (laughs) thermostat every few minutes (laughs) to adjust. Yes, writing your books in your gloves. <laughs> that's that's just about it. Not too different. <laughs> so you have a book coming out very soon and a book that just came out. So I kind of wanted to talk about both. But um, do you want to tell everybody first about The Blood Lie? That one is available now, right? Yes. The Blood Lie uh, is actually my first uh, novel for um, – upper, middle grade, and young adult, and it is based on a true story of a blood libel that happened in my hometown in northern New York State in the 1920s when my father was growing up there. Uh, Blood libel is a form of anti-Semitism wherein uh, anti-Semites throughout history would accuse the Jewish community of nefarious activities whenever, when somebody went missing. And in my hometown, a little girl uh, went out to play in the woods one late afternoon and got lost. And the uh, community and the state police got involved in accusing the Jews and searching their properties and interrogating the rabbi. Um, and making lots of threats. So my novel is a fictionalized version of that featuring on uh, the uh, two um, youngsters, one from teenager from the Jewish community who gets blamed for for the supposed murder, and one is the older sister of the little girl who got lost. So that's uh, real close to my heart, that book. Because I wow. learned that and first it, from my father. 
Yeah, it, I've never. When I read about the book, I thought, "Wow, I've never heard of this." Is this a historical novel, or does it? Did you change the time period? It it is a historical novel. It takes place in the year 1928, which is when this actual blood libel really did take place. Yeah, so it's uh, straight historical. Wow, how much research did you have to do for that? I had to do a lot, um, and it wasn't that easy information. Um, I first found out about the blood libel when I was in college, actually. I uh, was taking one of those required sociology classes, and our professor sent us home for fall break with the assignment to wherever you're going to be spending the fall break, find a local community conflict, either past or current, and write a paper about it and analyzing it. And I still remember driving home thinking, well, what am I going to do? Because nothing ever happens in Little Messina, New York. There's no conflict. <laughs> there are no juicy things going on. So I asked my father, you know, who had grown up there, if he had any ideas, and he told me about the blood libel. So I talked to people who um, were still around who had lived through it, including relatives and other people in the community. There had been a nonfiction book written about it, although it had quite a number of inaccuracies in it, and did scholarly research. And then, of course, I had to research uh, what life in a little town in northern New York would have been like during that time, and what were the norms and the customs, and what was the technology, and what was the economy like. So um, it was a deep dive, and I enjoyed it a lot. I always enjoy the research part. Yeah. Had you done – was this your first historical, or had you done others? That way it was my very first novel, yes. It was wow, okay. Novel. It came out in 2011, and the one that is coming out this February 8th will be my fourth Oh, novel. nice. Okay. So – when you decided to write um, the blood light, I'm, I'm assuming that you have Jewish traditions in your family, right? Yes, I am Jewish and um, on both sides for all the generations back. Oh my gosh, so okay. So, so my father's of... family, my father's fam family ran a dry goods store in Messina and they were uh, the day that an evening that, you know, the blood libel accusations got started. My father and his father and the whole family was awakened in the middle of the night by the state police to take them to the store to search the store to see if there were, like, body parts. Because wow. the rumor was that the Jews had murdered a Gentile girl and drained her blood for use in, you know, some sort of cooking or something, right? <laughs> and then did something with her body parts. And that happened all over town. And the rabbi had to, you know, go testify in the middle of the night. And there were gangs, you know, uh, threatening the Jewish community. And then there was a boycott for weeks afterward 
um, even though the little girl stumbled back out of the woods some number of hours later, actually the next day, but, you know, just hours later. Wow, and so she corroborated lived. that she had just gotten lost. And, mm-hmm. uh, but still, the, uh, there was a, a Jewish business establishment for weeks after that, thinking that, well, if they didn't murder her, they were going to murder her. Oh, my gosh. So, it was a it was a big big deal. Wow. Yeah. Wow. Wow. I yeah, I'm I'm so fascinated that you found this story because there probably are others that we've just never heard, right? No question. No question. And I'm always on the lookout for them. <laughs> <laughs> I I love that. Um, you also are dabbling in a history with the book that comes out very soon. That's up for pre-order right now called Ripped Away. Do you want to tell everybody about that yes. one? Yes. Uh, Ripped Away, uh, which is officially releasing uh, on February 8th, um, explores the real experiences of uh, Jewish immigrants to London during the Jap the Ripper Spree which is a time when xenophobia and bigotry ran really high. So in my story, in, in current times, in the now, a fortune teller tells two classmates, Abe and Mitzi, that they might be able to save somebody's life. And then she immediately sweeps them to the slums of Victorian England, Victorian London, uh, right in the middle of the Jack the Ripper spree. And to get back home, they're going to have to figure out who are they supposed to save, how are they supposed to do it, um, and how does the fortune teller's prophecy connect, if it does, with one of history's most notorious criminal cases. And they'll also have to survive the outpouring of hate toward Jewish refugees that the Ripper murders triggered. And, um, you know, in real life, many Londoners, including many police authorities, suspected that the Ripper was one of these Jewish immigrants. And the suspicion was that the whole Jewish community in London was harboring and protecting the Ripper. So there was a lot of backlash about this. And in essence, it was another blood libel. Wow. Um, and what, so when I was reading up about your book, I was fascinated because I, I've, you know, read the Patricia Cromwell book and, you know, you see all the specials on Netflix, all this stuff. And no one, right. I never have I heard anything about the Jewish angle that they were persecuting. You know, I had no idea. How did you exactly find all of that? That's well, something. the way I first found out about it was, I'm, I, I guess I'm a history buff. You know, when I was in my student days, I fastidiously avoided taking history classes if I could all at all avoid them because I thought it was just going to be all memorizing dates and battles. And right. it wasn't until I was no longer a student that was going to be taking tests and, you know, writing term papers that... I realized how rich and deep and varied history is. So I, as an adult, I a lot of history in different forms from, you know, nonfiction books to 
fiction movies to museum-related uh, blogs, and I'm just always looking. And I do have a special interest in the Jewish community, so I, I, um, you know, subscribe to certain uh, publications uh, that are focused on that. And that's how I just happened to come across um, this fact about Jack. And I was shocked that I knew nothing about it because everybody knows about Jack the Ripper. How right I didn't know about this. So um, then I did, you know, very specific research, and you know, it's documented, um, but people just don't talk about it. So I wanted. Do you to talk think about that? It that we get embarrassed, you know, as time passes that that those kind of things occurred. So rather than face it, we just kind of bury it. Is that is that how you think well those you know kind of things I, happen? I based on my small sample, I feel like it might be just the opposite, that at the time people are embarrassed and they bury it to the best of their ability. And then okay. the information just doesn't get passed on to the next generation and the generation after that. For example, the blood libel that happened in my hometown that goes with my book, The Blood Lie, you know, it actually didn't get reported in the New York Times. But nothing was mentioned in the local newspaper. Nothing at all, much less an wow. apology. You know, so it was right. like nobody ever talked about it. Um, so um, that's what I'm seeing in these particular cases. That, And then it just falls off the radar for, and subsequent generations don't learn about it. So right. I'm trying to and then we just keep that. repeating. Right, right. Because if you don't yeah. learn from history, you just keep exactly. repeating it. <laughs> yeah. No, oh, we humans were happening. something, yeah. <laughs> right? <laughs> yeah. Oh, my God. I agree. So did you ever imagine you would write a time travel? Did you have fun with that, adding a little bit of paranormal to your historical? I did have a lot of fun with it. And, um, you know, at first I didn't imagine that that was what it was going to be. In fact, I wrote my complete first draft as strictly historical in the third person. And then when I set it aside for a while and came back to read it fresh, I realized that, you know, modern young readers might not identify with these characters, with these two kids who are thrust, who are you know, living through the Jack the Ripper spree and the anti-Semitism. Um, right. Because in the original draft, those kids just were born and raised there. Because, you know, the language would be different, the customs would be different, the sensibilities would be different, um, the characters might have a smaller sense of their own agency, they would be able to reflect on things that have happened in more modern times because they wouldn't, right. they wouldn't have happened yet. 
And I decided that really to reach contemporary readers, I wanted to have contemporary voices and contemporary sensibilities. And then that just totally spoke to time travel for me. Um, right. So that's really how it happened. Oh, I love that. And um, it looked like on your on your website anyway that most of your books are YA and middle grade. Do you have any other genres that you dream about writing, or are you really happy with that that younger um, narrator? So far, I'm really happy with the younger narrator. I seem to my sort of place where my characters, uh, all of whom have minds of their own, seem to fall are in that upper middle grade into Y and like YA or early YA. And um, that just really works for me. I enjoy that voice. I can hear that voice. And I think that the readers of those works are are the people that I want to write for. Um, so that's just sort of works out well for me. And that kind of dovetails into my my next question. Readers are always interested in what your writing journey looked like because it's so different for everyone. <laughs> so uh, did yeah, you always yeah. want to be a writer or did it come to you later? Or, you know, what did your journey look like? You know, I am always one of those people who always knew she wanted to be a writer. And I recall very clearly that when I was small, like before school age, I would scribble, like take a pen or maybe a crayon and scribble on a piece of paper, hand the paper over to my mother, and genius that she was, she would read off to me this gorgeous prose or this lyrical poetry. And I thought, wow, if I can do that before I even know how to make my letters, just think what's going to happen when I know how to read and write for real. Wow. And I I always loved stories. You know, first I was on the receiving end as, as I continue to be as a reader. But, you know, growing up as the youngest of five screaming kids and two working parents, one way to get one-on-one attention would be to ask a parent or an older sibling to read to me. And those were some of my fondest memories from my early childhood. And then it just went from there, and I always loved it. Now, when it came time to, like, think about what I wanted to do when I grew up, I was afraid to major in creative writing or anything like that because I just had myself convinced that I'd never get a job or make a living. So I did not study it, although I did things on the side with summer jobs and internships. And I backed into writing in my early career by uh, working for a marketing communication, a large marketing communications firm where I was writing promotional stuff. And it didn't take long before I realized that that wasn't going to work. So I started uh, freelancing by writing feature articles and essays and, you know, while working a regular full-time job until I was ready to take the plunge. And that was with um, The Bloodline, which I knew 
from back when I was in college and found out about it and wrote a paper about it that I would want to expand it into a book, a fiction book. Yeah, wow. And so did you, when you were writing this book, did you do the traditional thing of finding an agent and all that kind of thing, or how did all that work for you? Uh, yes and no. <laughs> um, I did <laughs> – I did have an age, a literary agent, and we were both very excited about the book and sent it to the biggies, and it was declined, passed, as, as, as they say. So my agent, who was also an author and had gone through this herself recently, suggested that I do what she did, which is approach publishers directly. Um, now, the, the biggest publishers you can't directly, but there are many that you can. And that's how I um, got matched and signed a contract with Cinco Puntos Press, which has since become an imprint of Lee and Lowe books. Nice. And and that was your your um, in to start writing the rest of these books, right? Uh, yes. Um, the the blood lie and my two books after that were with Cinco Puntos, and ripped away is actually with Regal House Publishing. And they're in print Fitzroy books. Okay. And are you, all of these sound like they're standalone books. Have you ever thought about writing a series? What do you have percolating in the back? (laughs) You know, I really never have considered writing a series because um, it. It's not that I feel like everything is totally wrapped up in a bow when I write my books, but I feel like the characters and the events have gotten enough to the point where they sort of told me they needed and wanted to go that that um, has really been the end of the book and the end of the story. Um so, so far, no. Am I closed off to the idea? No. But I just haven't, <laughs> hasn't haven't had the yet. right. Yeah. Yeah, just not the right situation yet. Right. So I wanted to ask you about um, weaving real history in with fiction. I write paranormal fiction, so I love to right. find, like, unsolved mysteries and then give it a paranormal yeah. reason why that happened and that kind of thing. Do you have fun playing with these, or do you dig until you find a real reason? Um, you know, how do you play with fictionalizing history? Great question. Well, First, um, two of my books are contemporary and not based on true stories. So I'm not, you know, totally, uh, you know, funneled into historical fiction. But I do really like it. And I find that um, I just sort of, when when I do write historical fiction, I find that I come across a story from history. Um... And it 
just shouts out to me like, this is a great story and this would make a great novel and people need to know this story. But then I sort of have to wait until I hear the voice of the character. And that's usually what comes to me is just like a voice, like a character, you know, whether they're um, love or something they're upset about or just some sort of the way they would be like in conversation with me. And then I let it percolate some more and to figure out how these characters and this real historical event um, can can work together. So um, it and it, it really feels like a partnership. I have to do a lot of historical research to find out, you know, what really happened um, and what was life like really then, and then how to. Um, assimilate the characters' voices into that. And that's very much what I did for Ripped Away. Um, I, you know, um, did a lot of research about what really happened. And as I mentioned, I had to figure out what the right voice was to um, tell the story in in a way that's compelling to today's readers. I love that. And I always ask YA authors because I, it's always interesting. I write adult fiction, so I don't usually have to worry about parents. But every author that I have on that writes YA, this is a huge issue because good parents would never let your kids run off to time travel to England. How do you handle, you know, the the parental figures so that you can really let the characters have a big adventure that maybe isn't totally safe? Oh, that's safe. a great question. <laughs> that's a great question. Well, for Ripped Away, um, which takes place at the time and place of Jack the Ripper, I knew right off the bat that the Ripper was never going to appear on the page, that his crimes were never going to appear on the page, that that was the um, the background and sort of launching pad for the characters' adventures, um, and I made that decision with the audience in mind and just with my own what I would want to spend time researching and writing. Um, so um, I and I think that. Uh, one of the main reasons I enjoy writing for this sort of upper MG, early YA age range is that it fits with that, with wanting to talk about, wanting to, number one, write what kids will think is a great read, um, but also, you know, bring up some, you know, important kind of serious thoughts and questions um, without the going too dark. Right. That just right. Sort of matches what I like to do, and I think it's what's age appropriate. And but in the fiction, how do you how do you like to handle? I mean, obviously their parents didn't time travel with them, right? <laughs> So oh, how do you move the parents out of the situation? Yeah, I'm talking about the fictional parents. I see what you're saying. <laughs> well, you know, I gave them parents in the new world, which is actually the right. old world, um, so that they, you know, they had a home base from which they felt safe. Um, okay. 
and from which they could go on to have their adventures. And when they got to to England, did they have they didn't have parents there, right? They had to figure things out. Well, no, they they when they get to London, they do have families. They and oh, they have okay. even have different names. And it's, you know, they assume that it's sort of been like a body snatch, that back in their contemporary hometown, there are a couple of kids from Victorian England who now find themselves in 21st century America. Wow. So there's your follow-up right there. (laughs) Oh, right. It could be happening at the same time. It, yeah, story, yeah. But there's just your, from the other point of view. From the wow. other kids, yeah. <laughs> I wonder who will how the different would it be in the major motion picture? <laughs> right, right. <laughs> well, we're running out of time, but I wanted to ask: when readers read your books and they get excited, where can they get in touch with you? Where can they connect? Are you on social media? I am. First of all, um, you can email me through my website, which is Shirley Reva, R-E-V, like Victor A. Vernick, with another V, like Victor, ShirleyRevaVernick.com. I'm also on Twitter a lot, at Shirley Vernick. And I also have an author uh, page on Facebook, and I am just testing the waters, getting my feet wet on Instagram. And my book oh, trailers nice. on YouTube. Yeah. Yeah, and the book trailers are also on her website, and they're great. So everyone go take a look. Thanks so much for being on with us today, Shirley. It was great chatting with you. Thank you, Lisa. Really appreciated it. Thanks for joining us on Book Lights. Be sure to connect with us at www.readersentertainment.com for articles, blogs, videos, and podcasts that matter to readers.